Thank you, worship team. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I get the fun passage this morning, right? Everybody's saying, what's pastor going to say about this one? Thought of reserving it for Mother's Day, but decided against it. <laughs> Let's take our Bibles, though, and do turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And while we look at this passage, and some might find it offensive, this is the Word of God. And we shouldn't apologize for what the Word of God teaches. Listen, we view the Word of God as authoritative. We're not to take the ideas of society and use that as a lens through which to view the Scripture. It's to be the other way around. We need to look at our culture and understand that our culture is all over the map. We'll be in different areas toward different extremes, and when man drives the agenda, confusion sets in. But when God shares with us His clear revelation... There's clarity. And that's what we want to see this morning as we look into this text, crystal clarity. Now, one thing that we would suspect is that male and female would be pretty clear. But in our culture today, the idea of masculine and feminine is blurred. There's a great deal of confusion. As a matter of fact, what our society teaches us today is the idea that there's a continuum where you have male, you have female, and anything in between. It also teaches us that you can be born a man and reassign your gender or vice versa. What does the Scripture say about these things? Beginning in the first book of the Bible, we see clarity concerning gender. Let me read for you Genesis 1.27 where it says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then listen to this. Male and female, he created them. God clearly established differences in gender. And we need to accept what God has designed. Now this is true in general. But what Paul addresses here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 8, is the role that men and women would have in the church. And that's what we want to see. God has something to say to us this morning about the roles that men and women occupy within the church by giving us guidelines for church worship. So look carefully with me at the 8th verse and what we want to see is, first of all, the proper approach to worship for men. In verse 8, it says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, there are a couple of principles that the Word of God brings out with clarity to us about men and their worship in the church. And the first one is this, that prayer is to be an important part of all of our roles in church, but men are to lead in prayer. We're to set the pace when it comes to praying. Now, something I've seen in 35 years of ministry is that's often not the case. 
Brothers, our sisters put us to shame when it comes to prayer. I'm just being brutally honest in this. The prayer warriors in the church are often the women in the church. And what God is calling us as men to do is to see to prayer, to make sure that we are connecting with God through prayer. And that's to be done privately and that's to be done corporately. God wants men who pray. But notice, not only does he talk about prayer, he talks about lifting holy hands in prayer. Now here, I don't think he's talking about posture. In the first century, men would pray by lifting hands. As a matter of fact, when you go to the wailing wall in Israel, you'll still see this. Men stand before the wailing wall with their hands raised and they pray standing up. This was the posture of prayer in the first century. But that doesn't mean that that's prescribed for all people in all time. What it means is this. We need to be praying, and the emphasis on this should be on the holy hands. Not where those hands are, whether they're by your side or raised, but the character of those hands. When the Scripture talks about holy hands, what it's talking about are people who live righteously, who are in tune with what God would have you do. Holiness is aligning ourselves with God's attributes and characters revealed in Scripture that He wants us to follow. God wants us to be men who do holy things. That's the idea. The Scripture gives us a passage of Scripture that calls us to this holiness. In 1 Peter 1.15 it says this, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Holy means that we are set apart from sin, that we are set apart unto God, that we are following what God has revealed as the boundaries in His Word for how we should conduct ourselves. God wants people who pray to live holy lives. Now understand this. None of us will be perfectly holy. It's something that we strive toward. But it is something that we should aim for because, listen, If we are not directing ourselves toward the high goal of holiness and we settle for a goal less lofty, we'll usually hit below what we aim for. When I was in school, if I aimed for a B, I would usually get a C. In pass-fail, which I took in college, I almost went into the fail category because I was just at kind of angling for the, the pass category. When you shoot for an A, you do much better. That's the way it is with all of us. We need to aim for holiness. God wants us to lead holy lives, men and women. But this is addressed to men. Men, God wants us to take our holiness seriously. And especially as we are a part of the church body, we need to lead in holiness. We need to live consciously we need to live committedly toward leading holy lives. But then the text goes on. In addition to talking about the place of holiness in the life of the believer, look at what the eighth verse goes on to say, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now something that can short-circuit our prayer 
is having a life characterized by anger and disputing. So let's think about this together for a moment. How can anger affect my worship and my ministry within the church? That's a question that we have to address. So let's think about it. How can anger somehow short-circuit my prayer life or my interaction and worship within the church? The answer to this question is very clear. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile yourself to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You see the importance of maintaining right and good relationships according to the Word of God? Scripture is very clear that anger can short-circuit my worship. If I come to worship and I am bearing a grudge against a brother, I'd better get that sorted out if I want to be an effective leader, if I want to come to church and worship. Something else that he says in this text, in addition to getting our anger in check, we also have to get our disputing, our arguing in check. Look again at this eighth verse. We're to do this without anger or, as the NIV puts it, disputing. Now, this word is translated in various ways when we look in Scripture. One of the ways that this word is translated is dissension. The New American Standard translates it that way. And then there is quarreling in the English Standard Version. The Holman Bible translates it arguing. So what are we to do? We are to pray, lifting holy hands to God. We're to put aside anger, and we're to put aside dissension, those things that would divide us. We need to understand that in the dynamic of a church, when there is dissension and division within the church, a lack of unity, it affects the overall church body. And we need to do everything that we can to avoid these things. We need to live in such a way that we see the unity of the body of Christ as far more important than my petty peeves. I have to be willing to lay those aside if I'm going to lead and worship. And you know, this is a principle that we find borne out in Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, this is addressed to the male-female-husband-wife relationship, but it has bearing, I think, in principle to this text. Peter tells husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now look at this last phrase. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Do you realize that your prayers can be hindered by your relationship with other people? Your vertical relationship, that relationship with God, is directly affected by your horizontal relationship. So that's why in this scripture, Paul is calling the men of the church to have holy hands lifted in prayer without anger or disputing. Now that's the easy part of this text. Now we come into a more developed idea for women's roles in the church. So let's look at that as we come into the ninth verse. 
we want to see the proper approach for women in the church. And the first thing that we find the Word of God brings out in this text is that women are to pursue good deeds over self-glory. Now, if you'll notice that picture that we have on this slide, it's a picture of the hairdo that women often had in the first century. The hairdo was described by those who were even the pagans of the time as kind of over the top. A great deal of braiding, a great deal of curling and piling up. Some of the piles of hair, they said, would reach one or two feet into the air. So you might say it was really over the top. (laughs) And what they would do with this braiding is they would interweave gold and silver. Uh, Some of them hung what was sort of like many Christmas ornaments from their hair. So if you can imagine a church service where you sit behind one of these women... And they have, you know, the ultimate beehive. Some of you older people will know what that is. Along with all of this paraphernalia hanging from it, think of how that would be coming to worship and viewing that sort of paraphernalia. It would be difficult. That's part of what Paul is talking about. But let's carefully look at the Scripture. It says, I want women to dress modestly. Now, the word that the NIV translates modestly is a word that actually shares with us the idea of having things well arranged in order. It's a word that we get our word cosmetics from. And the idea is if you have cosmetics, hopefully you wear it in such a way that it enhances your beauty, but it doesn't make you focus on the cosmetics rather than the person. That's the idea. God wants women to dress modestly. Unless you think that Paul's just sort of shifting gears and changing places, what we find as we go from verse 8 to verse 9 is that Paul is using a word that the NIV kind of omits, and it's the word likewise. And what he's doing is he's talking about the roles of men and women in the church. The men, holy hands, quit arguing, quit disputing. For the women, one of the issues that was going on at the church of Ephesus was wardrobe choices. The women were coming in with hairstyles that were crazy, but in addition to the crazy hairstyles, they were also coming in like divas. They were decked out, and in some instances, some of their wardrobe choices were not decent. They revealed too much. And that's what Paul brings out in this text as he goes on to talk about dressing in an orderly way or modestly. He goes on to say, with decency and propriety. With decency and propriety. Now, what does he mean by decency? That's kind of a relative term, right? Here's the idea. Church is not a fashion show. It's not the place where we come to draw attention to ourselves. Worship is about honoring God. Anything that I have or do that distracts from the worship of God is out of place. So if I dress in such a way to turn heads, I haven't accomplished my objective in worship. I'm not saying that Christian women need to dress frumpy. 
But what we do need to understand is this. If our attire, because it reveals too much, causes a brother to stumble or to struggle with lust, then we need to be careful. Church should be a safe environment where we can come and we can worship God together. So anything that might look cute and current has to also be run through the grid of will this cause a brother in Christ to stumble. We need to truly be careful about that. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says that women are to dress with decency and propriety. God wants Christian women to be considerate of their brothers in Christ and to wear things that aren't provocative, but to wear things that allow them to be a part of the church worship without distraction. Very important that Christian women understand this. Now, we've already introduced part of the next thought where it says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women or for women who profess to worship God. Now, let's think about what's being said here. Sometimes our fashion tells us in our culture to dress for self-glory so that people will look at me and say, wow, that's the goal, that's the target, that's what we're going for very often when uh, we wear some of the styles and some of the wardrobe choices that women can make. There needs to be care given. The Christian woman's goal is to glorify God first and foremost. That should be the approach. And here's the comparison. Rather than dressing in these styles that completely draw attention to the body or to other parts of a woman that a man might be attracted to, what are they to do? They're to concentrate on good deeds. This is the wardrobe that God looks at as beautiful. Let me let you in on a secret, my dear sisters. The beauty that you have is the beauty that is within. Now, some of you have been blessed with outer and inner beauty, and thank God for that. It's not a curse to be beautiful, like that old commercial, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. You know, God has blessed some of you with an outer beauty, but listen, the beauty that lasts is the beauty within. And that's what God wants us to understand. Peter said this, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading, and I love that part, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is great worth in God's sight. That's the goal. Women should seek to develop that inner beauty that radiates Christ to others. And that's what the Word of God is telling us in both of these passages. That needs to be the emphasis. Look at verse 10 carefully. Women are to emphasize that their beauty comes from good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. But then the text goes on. 
Probably some of you are saying, okay, pastor, I'm with you so far. I know inner beauty as opposed to outer beauty, all of that. But then we come to verse 11. And from 11 through 15, we probably find the most controversial passage in our day in Scripture, particularly the 15th verse. Now some of you are reading ahead. Okay, what's the 15th verse? (laughs) Shouldn't have done that. But let's look at verse 11 first. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, what does the Scripture mean by this? Surely in the Greek it can't mean that a woman must learn in quietness and full submission. Well, you know what? I looked it up in the Greek, and that's what it means. But we have to understand Scripture in light of culture, and we have to understand Scripture in light of what was going on in Paul's day in order for him to write this. So that's what we want to do. First, don't get so bogged down in the quietness that you lose sight of what the most important thing for women to do is, and men, by the way, in this text, and that is to learn. We need to have a teachable, humble spirit in order to learn, right? Have you ever tried to teach somebody who's unteachable? Man, you try to share with them, and I already know that. You can't tell me anything new. I was so thankful I read that years ago. Got a handle on that, right? Isn't that annoying to try and teach somebody who's unteachable? Pride stands in the way of learning. The best students are humble students. And so what Paul is bringing out here is that the goal for women and men within the church, by the way, I would add we need to be teachable as well, but the goal for women in the church, and in particular I think he was addressing some of the women who are in Ephesus, is that they need to learn in quietness. Now think about this for a moment. A woman comes in in full diva mode. She is decked out. She's got her hair piled high. She's got Christmas ornaments all over it. She's got a dress that the designers of the first century were thrilled to put their label on. And she sashays down the aisle of church, all eyes on her. And the pastor gets up to speak, and she shakes her head, jangling all the Christmas ornaments. And she's not picking up what he's putting down. That would be tough, wouldn't it? This is what Paul was addressing in the first century. He was saying to the women, women, you know, my sisters in Christ, you need to learn in quietness and in submission. In other words, stop coming in thinking that the world revolves around you and understand that in order to be teachable, you have to be humble. True for men and true for women. But here Paul was addressing a situation that was in the church at Ephesus that really needed to be addressed. But then he goes on. In addition to saying that they need to learn in quietness and full submission, verse 12 goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach and to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now that's the part that people always recoil at, right? 
Women can't have authority over men and they have to be silent. What are you talking about? Isn't that sort of archaic? What are you, a caveman? I mean, what's coming across here? Why are you saying these things? Listen, God has established leadership in the church through the men. I'm just going to say that plainly and clearly because that's what the Word of God teaches. It doesn't mean that women are less valuable in God's sight. It doesn't mean that women are less intelligent in practice. It just means that God has put men in places of leadership within the church body, and we need to embrace that because this is God's revelation. We sometimes confuse the idea of subordination and equality, thinking that if you're subordinate to someone, you are not equal to someone. And that is a fallacy. Let me explain why. You have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet, within the Trinity, there is a structure of authority. The Spirit is directed by the Son. The Son is directed by the Father. Each equal God, and yet different as far as authority. If that's true for the Trinity, then that can be true for us as human beings in our relationship with one another. You better not think that in the armed services that every general is superior to every private. Many of those who are in the rank of private will be smarter, will be more courageous, will have better character and quality than some of the generals, but in order for the army to function, there has to be chain of command. And that's true for God's church as well. Now, God has established the chain of command is to be men. That doesn't mean, however, that women have no voice or that women have no place within the church. When we come to the part where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, there's a divergent uh, interpretation of this passage by Bible teachers. The stricter end of the spectrum says that no woman is to ever speak in church in any way. That's an extreme. The other end of the spectrum is that, hey, man, these are the 2000s. 2,000 years later, you can't believe what that book has to say about that situation, so it's irrelevant today. We've moved past it. Other end of the spectrum. What I believe the Scripture is teaching in this text is this. Number one, it was specific to some of the issues that were going on in Ephesus. So the teaching and authority issues were women coming into the church at Ephesus and usurping the positions of authority and leadership within the church, and the church was suffering. But I don't think we can just look at this text and say, well, then it's irrelevant because it doesn't apply to us today. I think God still has those roles in place where there is to be male leadership, but there are instances where women can teach and instances where women can be delegated authority to manage a certain area of ministry. 
That's my understanding of this passage. I think that the teaching and the authority are linked together. And the way this reads in the original text is this. Women are not to be teaching and to be authoritative over men. The idea was a consistency, an office, a place where these women would accept roles of leadership and would lead over the men of the church on a long-term, consistent basis. There are instances where there are no men to fulfill a role. And I'm thinking in particular of church planting. We have a missionary who served in Japan for a number of years and planted over 40 churches. And initially, when she would win people to Christ, there was no opportunity for men to teach in that church because none of them knew the word. They hadn't been taught. They hadn't been trained. So she would lead, but as soon as the male leadership was ready, she would hand it off and go plant another church. This is what God, I think, allows for in his scripture. I don't think that that particular missionary was wrong in the way that she approached things. What about if a missionary comes into church to give a report? There are some churches that will tell female missionaries you're not allowed to to read Scripture or to make any scriptural comments. I think that's wrong. They're coming in under the authority of the elders and the senior pastor, and they're sharing what God is doing in their work. And for them to have the opportunity to share under their authority what she is learning and leading in is appropriate. It's good for them to use Scripture. So I think that we have to take a balanced, sensible approach to this passage of Scripture. Women also fulfill many important roles in the church, such as discipling other women. Older women are to teach younger women, we're told in Scripture. Such as teaching children. Listen, I still remember Sunday school teachers that I had who were godly women and who instilled in me many of the pieces of knowledge and truth that I have in my life today. They fulfill an important role. And then within the home, women have a responsibility in rearing their children and seeing to their growth. Now, look at verse 13. The reasoning behind Paul establishing this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, the first reason that God has established male leadership within the church, according to the Word of God, priority of creation. Man was created first. Woman was created second. Now, some might say, well, that's not fair. Why did God do that? You know what? I have an answer for you. I don't know. But he did, and he revealed it, so I embrace it. So what we have to do is come to terms with that and say, you know what, if if this is what the Creator structured, then this is what I accept. I will accept what the Creator says. Second reason, and this one's a little more difficult, verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, there are some people who are sort of misogynists who have taken this passage of Scripture and beaten women up with it, and I think that's awful. Are women easier to be deceived than men? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, in our household, I'm the gullible one. You know, 
Paula will look and size something up. I really believe she has the gift of discernment, and she'll say, Ron, better think twice about that. And I've learned to start listening to her. <laughs> because she's right. And I've met other women in the church who are very discerning. It's not saying that women are more gullible than men. That's not what the text is teaching. What it's saying is this. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, there were several disciplines that were administered to men and to women, and the woman's role was one of the disciplines that God established there in Genesis because the woman was the first to be saved. Also understand this. When Adam sinned, and Eve was not the only one who sinned, Adam sinned with eyes wide open. He walked in and he looked and he said, I know that this is disobedience, I know that this is wrong, but guess what? I'm going to do it anyway. Many believe that perhaps Adam had elevated Eve to such a place that he couldn't imagine life without her. So wanted to follow in the relationship with his wife over above the relationship with God. We don't know his motivation, but we do know that he came in with eyes wide open. So God has established within the church these roles, if you will, in light of these truths. But then we come to the 15th verse. Now listen, the 15th verse has more interpretations than you can shake a stick at. I mean, I read as many commentaries as I could on the 15th verse just to get different ideas, and I became more confused after reading all of the commentaries than I was going into it. So you know what I did? I chucked the commentaries... And I just started saying, what is the Word of God saying here? Let's see what I think the Scripture is saying. Always a good way to approach the Word of God. So here's the verse. But women shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in love, faith, and holiness with propriety. Now, if you read this verse on the surface, it would be a little bit scary Women will be saved through childbearing. There was one school of thought at one time who said that unless you bear a child, you won't be saved eternally. You won't go to heaven. Think of the poor women who were barren who had to have that interpretation foisted on them and the guilt and the shame that they would have with that kind of interpretation. Rule that one out. Another interpretation is that if... You are a godly woman. You will survive the childbirthing process. Again, same problem. There are godly women who have died during childbirth. Can you imagine sharing that with a husband who has just lost his wife when she died during childbirth? Horrible, horrible interpretation. So rather than give you... Six or seven other ones that I came across. What's going on here? Understand this. Paul has just set into place some very clear prohibitions for women when it comes to ministry. Basically, what he's saying is that a woman shouldn't pastor a church or be an elder in the church. 
That's the idea that's coming across through the parameters that Paul has set into place. So some women might have looked at this passage of Scripture and said, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair that men get to be leaders, and I don't. How's that fair? By the way, let me also clearly point this out. There are some men who don't qualify to be leaders as well. Many. But some woman might have looked at this and might have said, wait a minute, that's, that's just not fair. So you know what Paul did? He started talking about something that women can do that men can't. I have yet to met the man, meet the man who can bear a child. Now, there was a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito a few years ago. Biologically impossible. And by the way, if they have gender reassignment, still biologically impossible. Women, and only women, can bear children. So what does he mean here when he says they will be saved through childbearing? The Greek word that is translated saved here can mean many things when we look in Scripture. It can mean our eternal salvation. It basically has the meaning of deliverance. Often that term deliverance applies to deliverance from sin and therefore deliverance into eternal life. But it's in contexts translated differently. Sometimes it means that a person is preserved through something. And sometimes it means that a person is fulfilled and healthy and good and in a good place. And that's what I believe it means here. The women who have the opportunity to bear a child will find a great deal of fulfillment in that role that a man can never experience. It's just the way God designed things. Now, let me be very, very clear. If you are a woman and you are single, that doesn't mean that you are somehow less godly or less sanctified than a woman who might bear a child. It's not setting that parameter up. It's not saying until you have a child you're unfulfilled because there are women who are unable to have children and there are women who have the spiritual gift of celibacy and singleness. But what it is saying is this, as far as gender roles, women have been given the opportunity to bear children, and they can find a great deal of fulfillment in that ministry. Now, some of you, my sisters, have never had children, but you have been someone's spiritual mom. You've nurtured them. You've walked them through what it is to have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. You're fulfilling a role that a man probably can't fulfill. Some of you have adopted children, and you have taken on the role of childbearing or rearing, and you have a wonderful ministry in the life of that child. God blesses that, and you will find fulfillment in that. And listen, you will minister to that child in a way that a man can't. Now that I've had grandchildren... I love watching the interaction between my sons and their kids and my daughter-in-laws, who are my chosen daughters, and their kids. And just in something as simple as changing a diaper, you know, the dad comes in and he's like, I got a mission. 
Let's peel this thing and throw it off and clean them up and get it done as quick as I can. It's nasty. But mom comes up, and she makes an event out of it. She's nurturing that little thing with legs going everywhere and bad stuff all over them. And she truly ministers to the baby. Now, I'm not saying that this happens in every situation, but women are directed in that way. There's a special part of them that God has designed that ministers in a very special way. And so what the Word of God is saying here is this. Look, you will find your fulfillment not in leadership in the church body, but you're going to find it in other things that men don't have access to. And notice the parameters for finding that. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Want to be the best mom that you can be in fulfilling that role? Pursue these things. Pursue faith, trust in God. Pursue love. Let that unconditional love of God flow through you into the lives of your children. And then holiness. Set that example of being what it is to live out the principles and the truths of Christ. This morning, we've seen the roles of men and women within the church. We've seen that men are to be leaders in prayer and leaders in lifestyle. And we've seen that women have significant roles within the church, but there is one caveat. They are not to be the consistent pastor or elder of a church. This is why Oakland Bible Church has these principles in place as far as leaders in our own church body. We try to be biblical. We don't want to allow society to tell us what is right and what is wrong. God's revelation has to be our starting point and ending point. And that's why we try to practice it, because we believe it to be a revelation from God. Sisters in Christ, I hope that this morning you are encouraged by what God can and will do through you. Understand that the role that you have is learning in submission, just as that is our role as men, as we sit under the Word of God. Submit to the Word of God and learn what it has to say. And I would encourage you, when you come across a passage like this, don't invite your feminist friends that Sunday. And then number two, understand that these roles that are put into place by the Creator are roles that He has set into place as the all-wise God. And we will submit to His leadership, His wisdom, His design. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this